At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Hees. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and thank you for tuning in today for another great episode. We have none other than Dan Infault. On today's show, he has also been dubbed the Big Buck Serial Killer, and we talk about that on on this episode, along with strategy and scouting different habitat setups. You know, Dan hunts private land as well. Uh, We talk a lot about his private land setup, how they go about that, setting up the habitat, and where the bucks bed, and how he hunts and sets up his habitat in relation to buck bedding. Dan is a big public land hunter, a big uh, buck bed hunter, you know, a big scouting guy. These are all great things that we talk about in this episode, and it's a really fun conversation. So I urge you guys to check it out. Thanks so much for tuning in. Now, for those who don't know, all of our episodes and gear and information can be found at habitatpodcast.com. So that's a great place to listen. Um, If not, you can listen on, you know, your Stitcher radio app or your podcast app on the iPhone, wherever is easiest for you. But be sure to check out HabitatPodcast.com. Uh, if you don't have any of those, and, and that's a great way to, to find out what we're doing all the time. Uh, I'd like to tell you guys about a Habitat Expo we're doing on Corey Francis' farm here in May. It's uh, May 3rd, Sunday. We'll be out there with a few other Habitat guys and gurus. And then uh, we're going to have about, I think we're going to cap the limit at 150 people. So... Today's early March. It's two months away, and we already are at 100 people registered. So be sure to find the Habitat Expo. There's a link to it on the Habitat Podcast Facebook 
and be sure to register. It's a free event, and uh, it's going to be a great day in the woods, guys. So hope you all can make it. Now, I want to talk about uh, Packer Max Call to Packers. I know Lincoln was at the Iowa Deer Classic this past weekend, um, getting his product out there to a bunch more deer managers like us and wildlife managers. But if you don't know, any packer you buy, well, you'll get a $50 discount if you mention the Habitat podcast. It's part of our program with Lincoln, and uh, a lot of people have been taking advantage of that discount. So you can get the standard unit, you know, shipped to your door for $50 off and, and free shipping. It's, it's a pretty good deal. So be sure to check him out at PackerMax.com, guys. And next, I want to talk about killer food plots. Uh, we always started out not testing our soil. At least I did. I didn't test the first couple food plots I put in. But Nick makes this really great soil test kit that you can get from his website at killerfoodpots.com. And that really shows you what is in your soil, what is lacking, you know, what's not in your soil, how much lime or fertilizer to to add or, or anything else that you might need in your soil. It's just a really important step to do, and I urge everybody to, to get their soil tested before planting a food plot. Otherwise, you could be wasting money on seed and, and other things that, you know, you're not properly set up for. So... Check out that soil test kit at KillerFoodPlots.com. I'd like to thank uh, 5-2 Outdoors, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, The Habitat Hook, and lastly, Morse Nursery. Um, we're going to get right into the episode here. Uh, before we do, I have a quick uh, excerpt from Charlie Morse on some special trees. Other than that, Dan and Fault coming up next. Yeah, hello, this is uh, Charlie Morse from Morse Nursery, and I'm going to be highlighting uh, a few plants um, that that we offer that are a little unique. Uh, today, I would like to discuss the dwarf chinkapin oak. Um, it's a very unique oak in that they grow more like a bush than they do a tree, um, even though they can be a small-looking tree, they're mainly bush-type. And these are great for going around borders of apple trees or food plots because they don't get tall and shade things out. They produce acorns within three years from a seedling. Um, and probably one of the most unique things about this plant is most white oaks are tip producers. They produce just on the ends of the branches, where this will produce acorns all up and down the branches the whole length. So they become quite productive in their acorn production for the size of the plant, and many of them hold their leaves through the winter. You can look this plant up at morsenursery.com. Dwarf chinkapin. All right, everybody, we are back with another episode of the Habitat Podcast. My co-host, Brian Hallblight, on the line, and a very special guest tonight, Mr. Dan Infault. How are you doing tonight, Dan? Pretty good. And Brian, how are you today? Doing very good. Thanks, Jared. How are you? Oh, not too bad. Not too bad. Getting through uh, another Monday here in the wintertime, but happy to be chatting Habitat and hunting with you two. Um now, Dan, thanks so much for coming on. I don't know about Brian, but I've been uh, a fan of yours probably for, I don't know, maybe a decade or so. Been, been a long time. 
and uh, when Brian reached out to you and, and hooked this up, I was pretty excited, so appreciate it today. Cool. Appreciate that. So for those who might not know, um, I was talking to a good bow hunting buddy, Brent, of mine the other day, who uh, wasn't familiar with your your history and your work. Uh, I about slapped him, but for those who don't know, tell us a little bit about Dan and Fault, where you're from, maybe what you do for a living if you want, things like that. Paint a little picture. Um, I grew up in southeast Wisconsin. Uh, I'm 53. Um been hunting my whole life, um, and uh, I've mainly hunted uh, public land and a few small farms, um, but I've traveled around a little bit, too, around the Midwest and, and hunted, and I've uh, been fortunate enough to take a lot of nice bucks over the years. Yeah, it seems uh, a lot of the stuff we hear about with, with you and, and the hunting beasts is a lot about public land, and that seems to be... The majority, but um, you also hunt other places like private land or uh, drawing type situations where you have to get in a draw, things like that, correct? Correct. I have a 70-acre farm near my house that I hunt uh, and, and manage, and uh, I also hunt some conservancies where you, you know, work in exchange for a draw, or some of you just put your name in the hat, um, that kind of stuff. Now, when you have to work in exchange, what exactly do they have you doing? Uh, usually cutting invasive species, buckthorn, stuff like that. Really? Yeah, so the main one I do, I um, you put in four hours, you get your name in the hat once, and there's a drawing. So um, I put in like uh, about 20 or 30 hours during the summer of work, and then uh, they allow you to buy a point for every hour you work so I'll buy as many hours as I've worked because uh, an hour costs 10 bucks and I would just buy all the hours if I could <laughs> <laughs> that's not a bad gig though too because you're helping out the the conservatory if you will you're helping out the, the habitat by getting rid of those invasives so that's kind of cool I haven't heard of anything like that here in Michigan Brian you heard of anything like that by you no, that's uh, something new to me. Uh, Pennsylvania has some volunteer days for um, the game commission to go out and do some stuff on the game lands, but nothing like that. Hmm. Yeah, I like that idea. So the fact that you've been hunting a lot of public and, and private, just hunting a lot over your whole life, I mean, you've been dubbed the uh, Big Buck Serial Killer. First of all, where did that name come about? I've always wondered. Uh, th- that came about uh, years ago. Uh, a friend uh, uh, dubbed that comment um, <laughs> just because of the way I was killing deer, I guess. Because um, it was kind of like a, he thought it was like a serial killer the way I stalked him down. And, <laughs> and we had a laugh about it, and it just kind of stuck, you know. Nice, nice. Well, hey, there could be a lot worse nicknames than that. (laughs) (laughs) So for those who might not know, you like to get close to mature bucks, uh, whether it's private or public land, um, in in their bedding or or near where they bed. Um, And how has that helped you 
by hunting all this public land, how are you still able to relate that into into private with the boundaries or, or just any of the limitations that private land might have? Well, you know, what's interesting is I think uh, most people that hunt private just got this really bad perception of public. And when you get into public, when you first get into it, um, it might uh, help you believe in that uh, even harder. I mean, you might think it's really horrible. But when you start diving into it and figuring it out, um, you can find spots absolutely as good as some of the best private properties on public land. You just have to work harder. You have to dig deeper. You have to search. So you have to put some time into it. And what has really helped me over the years is now I have that private farm that we manage. But I literally have only hunted it 10 times this whole season, and I think I overhunted it 10 times. But we had a lot of good bucks on it this year. But I spread myself out, and I hunt a lot of public too. Um, think about it like this. there's a That area where the, that farm I have is, is really heavy pressure. I think most areas where there's good deer are pressured, you know. Um, but there's a few spots around there. There's like this one spot that's a 10-acre farm that um, a couple women own, and uh, they don't allow hunting. I think they're vegetarians. They hate hunters. <laughs> they got to post like crazy. You drive by there on noon on opening day, and there's a 10-pointer eating in their little clover field. Jeez. Why? You know, you don't see those anywhere else in in daylight. Why are they there in that little tanker spot? What's so special about that? Well, what's special is nobody goes in there and bothers them, period. So what you have to do on your property is make it so that it has less pressure than the neighbors, you know. Um, But there's spots like that on public, too. There's places on that public where nobody goes, or at least they go very seldom. So... All you have to do is find those spots, and you can start to relate, you know, the two of them. The downfall is, you know, um, I can manipulate the private. I can't on the public. I can just hang a stand and hunt. All right, Dan, run that by me one more time. You said it's a disadvantage that you can manipulate your habitat on private versus public that you cannot. That seems interesting. Well, well it's a disadvantage hunting the, the uh, public is that you can't manipulate your spot. Oh, sure. I From private, you. you can. Gotcha. So, knowing that, and even with the, the pressure that you mentioned, that the little 10 acres that nobody goes on, I mean, when you're hunting some private farms, like, like your buddy Dave's farm, we've seen in some of the videos, mm-hmm. are you guys super low pressure on that? Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, the majority of the stands we have there, or what I call observation stands. So we have them positioned and we have openings positioned to see what's going on on the farm. Sit back and watch and don't go in until there's a good buck. And then in some places we have um, cell cams, send us pictures. Yeah. Where I, I do some of that on the uh, public land, but you take a high risk of losing a camera, you know, or, um, but you can't really manipulate it. You can't, um, the observations are harder because it's usually heavier cover, you know, versus uh, watching a field edge or an opening or even a created opening. You know. Okay, so 
knowing that, are you hoping that with that low pressure that bucks are actually going to bed on your private parcels that you're hunting? Or, um, or what if they don't? Correct. So, so what I'm doing is I'm creating this low pressure on that property um, so that the bucks want to bed there versus the outside properties that have more pressure. Okay. And then when I know there's a good buck in there, then I plan a move to go in for a kill. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. So even if you're private, might not be the the preferred bedding come mm-hmm. October 1st or maybe September or something. Once the neighbors start hitting their opening day for the first week, you're just sitting back and waiting until the cameras yeah. give you some good intel or something gives you some intel that there's something you want to get after on the property you have access to. Yeah, I was, I was, you know, I did a um, workshop, uh, some workshops over the weekend. And yeah. uh, yesterday's workshop, uh, I had a young guy there who has permission to hunt on a, uh, a large, well-managed property that has a lot of big bucks. Wow. And he told me of his frustration that this guy has a sanctuary. He says the guy hasn't shot a deer in a couple of years, and, and but he sees him all the time come out of the sanctuary in the same spot, but he won't go over there because that's a sanctuary. <laughs> and he said that uh, since he had permission, he went over there and hunted one day, and as he's putting the stand up, he looks down the giants walking underneath him and his bow's on the ground. Mm. And then he told the landowner about that, and he's like, you can't hunt in there, that's a sanctuary. And made him go back, and nobody's killing anything. Mm. You know, because of the, you know, when I'm on a property like that, those deer die, you know. But it is still like a sanctuary it, because we don't go in there until the time's right. Right. You know, I'd be, I'd be where that guy's sitting, where his stand is, his kill stand would be my observation stand. I'd be watching that deer come out, figuring out a plan, and then I'd move in for the kill. And another thing about those observation stands, when you're sitting back, a lot of times you realize that those deer are betting right on the edge of cover, watching those openings, watching those food plots and stuff. And sometimes you cannot just walk over there and set up on a food plot. You, you know, um, who hasn't had the camera on a food plot and you're getting picture after picture of the same buck day after day or every time it's a west wind? So you get a west wind, you go in there at noon, you sit there, and you sit there all day, and it never comes. You leave, the west wind comes. Well, it's because he's watching you. Yeah. He knows when you're there. They they really like to watch those those spots. And what they really like to do is get that wind to the back on a wood lot. You have the wind blowing at the, the food plot or the field, and they watch it, you know, from that edge. And I think a lot of people don't get that. They think the deer bed in the middle of the woods, and they don't. They're edge creatures, and they're like downwind edge. So the hunter is waiting for that wind and his advantage that's going to be in his face when he goes in there. And really, that's the buck's advantage because he's at that edge watching downwind, so he's going to see you go to that edge. So those observations tell me, where is that deer going when he gets in there? When does he get to a critical spot where I can get at him and hunt him? And that's where some of those private land guys got to get a little mobile because watch how that deer goes through that plot or that area, and you find some place where you can manipulate it, whether you got to hunt out of a ditch on the side of it or crawl up to a tree that's blocked by a pine tree or something and 
you know, whatever you got to do, but you figure something out by watching it and seeing where these deer go when they get up and come in there. I think a lot of people don't realize that when a deer gets to be five or six, they do not move far from bedding. If you're getting them to come into an open area, they are really close to where they bed. So going in there to hunt, you're really taking the chance of pushing them out of there, you know? Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And I kind of have a, a scenario for you. If you have a long, narrow property, your access is from the east, so you're going into a west wind. And to the mm-hmm. west would be a swamp, so they're they're gonna, they're bedding out in the swamp or on the edge, if you will. Mm-hmm. The wind at their back, and they're watching towards the east, mm-hmm. uh, on into, into the more open woods or into the fo- the field, the food pot, whatever. And you're limited a little bit by boundaries. What what have you done to to sneak in there, or how far can you get where a deer can definitely see you, or might question you as something different. Like, what's the what's their vision range on that? No, they can they can see quite a ways. Hmm. Um, what I like to do is have some sort of blockade. Like, uh, if it's private grass, you know, or uh, brush, or block them somehow. If I know where the bedding is, you can cut down a tree and block a view. Um, there you go. Now I do that that same scenario you're talking about a lot on on public where I can't do that kind of stuff. And I just use cover. Um, the main thing I want to I want to do is really learn that bedding area because if I know exactly where they're bedded, how they're using that wind, how they're using their eyesight and stuff, and if I go down in there and look from their view out, you know, at this time of year, not during hunting season, obviously, but at this time of year, I go in there and figure it out. I'm looking out of those bedding areas and I'm looking at what do they see. Then I can see how I have to access where I'm not going to be seen, if that makes sense. Definitely. Um, one follow-up, if you were to drop a tree, so say you got in his bed, I, I have an, a, a, an idea where a nice buck was better on my property. Say I found his bed, I get down in it, I'm looking. You can see mm-hmm. 75, 80 yards towards my access, which would not be good. Um mm-hmm. And say you drop a tree or something just to block that view, will that compromise the bed if you can't see where he wants to see? It depends on, it depends on how close you do it. Okay. I mean, if you do it right on top of him or something, it's going to bug him out of there. Do it further away. Or okay. change his bedding. But uh, if you do it further back, just enough to block your view but not really compromise the bedding. Got it. You know, just to give you one patch to get behind to, to hide you. you know, and then you're going to get in line with that and straight line. Got it. And tell us a little bit about how uh, Dave's farm lays out. Is it a square or rectangle? Uh, Dave's farm is a pretty hard farm to hunt. Um, You have to come in um, with the west wind blowing at your back down the farm. It's a long skinny farm. It's the opposite of what you just said with the going in from the east. I mean, going in from the west. So, so you, you go in there and you got the, uh, some sort of westerly wind blowing right down the middle. So your best bet's a, uh, a north or a south wind and then pulling one way or the other. Um, it is a very open farm. It was all fields at one time and it's grown in and there's a little swampy area in the center. Um, it's, it's a little bit of a roll to it but definitely not hill country. 
so the elevation changes by like um, 10, 15 feet and it has uh, two holes to it, two ridge rolls. Okay. So the access points, you pretty much determine them by the type of wind that you got there for the north and, or south. Yeah, and I'm, I'm forced to come in um, from up by the farm because there's only one road bordering it. I don't have access across the neighbors. Okay. So I have to come in um, from that east. All right. Now, the food plots that you guys planted in there, how did you determine where we're going to put those at? Well, in the um, larger areas that are kind of useless terrain, that aren't, you know, it's not bedding, it's not food, it's not nothing else, um, we put larger plots in, you know, like uh, corn or beans or whatever, and just let it stand. Okay. And we put small little uh, um, plots underneath the observation stands so that uh, you're at least entertained or have a chance when you're observing. Um, and then we put uh, uh, little plots in right up against bedding areas that are kind of hidden and they're really small, um, usually like clover or something, you know, or a clover mix. And uh, uh, we really don't, you know, you get them cut nice and so they grow nice and, and you just leave them. And then we observe them until there's something good coming in there or you put a cell cam on there. And uh, those spots only get hunted uh, once or twice a year. Our best one didn't get hunted this year at all because we never saw a good buck in that area. So bucks, we saw bucks in there, but not in that particular area. So we didn't we didn't hunt that one. Um, so it's really kind of um, – we only hunt our, our best stands about uh, three or four times a year, and I think we're overhunting them. Personally, but yeah. uh, Dave wants to hunt more than I do. In sure. There. And uh, he's just recovering from cancer and really can't do the public land thing anymore. Okay. That's all, all he has. So I have to compete against that a little bit, um, which makes it a little tougher. Because um, I, th- I, th- I think that um, putting even less pressure on it would be even better. Yeah, for sure. And that that's one thing that a lot of us small property owners struggle with. We own the property, mm-hmm. we're there so much, and we put so much work into it, and we feel like yep. we've got to be out there hunting it. And Like you said, the best thing is to stay out of there if you can. I'll tell you something. Um, um, I don't do a lot of it because I'm kind of busy, but I'll take some guys on, and I'll, I'll go scout their properties for them and help them out. And I see something over and over and over again, um, about once a year, I'll, ha- I'll have a, a landowner tell me that they don't get it. They go in there, they put all these plots on, they put all these cameras out, they, they put all these stands in, and they think they know all the bucks. And then the neighbor's just got this 40 acres of woods he doesn't do anything with. He's just a farmer. And he just walks out there and opening day of gun, sits on a bucket, and shoots this giant buck every year. <laughs> and they're like, what gives? And I say, I'll tell you what gives. He's only out there once a year. You're out here all year putting in these plots and working on this stuff and getting up in the bedding areas, harassing them. You know, I try to get in there and do a little bit of scouting, a little bit of work, but then get out, you know. And I think I think you're right that when a guy buys a piece of property and they put everything they have into it, they're proud of it. And they want to work it and they want to be hunting out there and they want to, they want to enjoy it. 
And I'm kind of the opposite. I, don't, I want that land to get really special, so I want to leave it be. I got something where nobody can go in there and, and harass it. You know, on public land, I can have a great bedding area. And when I go in there, I don't know if two days before some guy went through it or a, a coon hunter with hounds went through it. Yeah. I have no idea. But on my land, I'm relatively certain nobody's been in there. I mean, they, they could get in there, yeah, but you're relatively certain of it. So you can you can manipulate that and you can control it and you can sit back and say, I'm not going in there until the perfect time or until the deer are moving, until I'm seeing them. You know, and then I take and I go and I hunt the public a lot and I spread myself out and go hunt those areas. Maybe it's harder, maybe I see less deer, but while I'm working on those deer, my land's getting better. Yeah, that's a great point. So when you, when you're doing the food plot work and everything, uh, what what time of year do you put the uh, kibosh to everything and just stay out of there? Do you give it a couple months or how long do you recommend? Uh, usually we you know we get our plots in and uh, end of July and into August when we're getting our last ones in there. We go in there get them in as fast as we can and get out. I mean we don't sit there monitor them or anything like that. Okay, so you're you're giving it at least a good month or two. Yeah. Okay. And I don't uh, think the plot is so bad. The, the biggest thing is, um, you, you, you know, not getting into those bedding areas. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, is there primary buck bedding naturally on there, or is this a situation like you talked about earlier where they'll move in when the pressure starts from the outside? Uh, well, they move in with pressure in and out, and they move in for food sources in and out. And uh, sometimes it's better and sometimes it's worse. Um, we really see a difference of how well our food plots are versus how well we see deer. This year we had good food plots and we saw good deer, but we had uh, some problems with the neighbors having some problems and leaving their crops up all year. Uh, they had some um, problems getting their crops out because of wet terrain and stuff. And left corn up all year, and, and then we were watching all the deer going through their corn other than ours because we have a smaller plot, which kind of sucked. Um, <laughs> but it's really in relation to how well our plots are and stuff, which is when you see the bucks move in and stuff and, and pressure. Um, we usually do not hunt um, the first um, five or six days of gun, and we only have a nine-day gun season. We usually okay. that last weekend, um, and by then it's usually really good. Um, but if we go in there that first day, it just kind of, they, they kind of know they're being hunted all over and they scatter. Sure. You know, and you just keep that pressure on them. But if we stay out of there, they just come they just come right in there, you know. Right. And then by the end of the uh, week, we usually have some good deer running around in there in gun season. Okay. Kind of the opposite of other people. Other people be in their opening day, right? For sure. Oh, yeah. We're in the public on opening day. <laughs> <laughs> Smart. Is there anything you guys have done to improve the bedding on that 70 acres, or is there anything that we can do for that? Yeah, um, the, the biggest thing is, is, as far as mistakes I see people make, is they try to create bedding. Uh, that is a difficult thing to do. Bucks bed in a certain area for a certain reason. The best way you can you can make your bedding better on your property is to enhance your bedding. 
not to try to create new betting, but to enhance the places they already want to bet. I mean, you can create betting to, to, to a degree. You can take open woods and make it thicker, and but it's still got to have the features that um, Buck wants to bet on. I mean, just just hinge cutting a whole rich really doesn't do you a whole lot of good. Um, like I'll see guys take a whole leeward ridge and from the top to the bottom make it thick. I think they're going to have this huge bedding area. Well, Bucks are still going to bed up at that top third, and they still want an opening to look down, so it's going to be a little frustrating for them. Um, so I would, you know, like from where they bed up, I'd make it thick. They like Remember, they like to be on that downwind side of the thick cover with open underneath them, so they want to get looked on a ridge but have it thick behind them for escape and, and uh, have the wind coming from behind over the top of the ridge. Um, you know, you can just you can make the bedding a little thicker. You can drop trees in the right direction that they can lay behind and that kind of stuff. But you need to do it where they already want to bed. That's a great point and, and pretty interesting. We talked to a bunch of guys uh, and gals in the last couple of years, and some guys you know go to as far as putting a, a log down for a backrest and laying down some straw mm-hmm. to as little as, you know, just opening up some sunlight and letting some young growth come up. Um, if you have bedding on a ridge, like you're saying, and they're bedding towards that military crest area, that top one-third, are you enhancing that other than opening up and letting more undergrowth come up? I mean, is there, you're letting the sunlight in, basically. Is there anything else you're doing? Adding a little water hole or doing any trails that yeah, might hinge Yeah, if, if I put block? water holes up on ridges, what I like to do is, if you got a primary bedding point, I like to get that water hole not up in the middle of that point, but off to one side on the edge and get that wind where you have that leeward wind, so the wind's in the buck's favor, but it's kind of blowing off to the side over the valley, so you get on the edge of that uh, the drop on the point, like in the armpit of the point, per se. And I uh, have the water hole there, and the water hole should be like uh, 75, 100 yards from that point, and you want it thick from the water to the bedding, and the first opening is the water hole. So that they have uh, the comfort of walking to there before they're into an opening. They don't like passing those openings in daylight. Got it. Yeah. And, and are you... If you're creating bedding on a ridge or a point, are you doing it in pockets or are you doing the whole top one-third of the ridge? Like, are you keeping it diverse or going full out, you know? Yeah, you, you, I do it in pockets for sure. Okay. Um, n- number one, if you do the whole ridge, the whole ridge is going to mature at the same time. Yeah. You know, you can do different areas at different times and you can have different maturities. Um, but for me, for me, um, having the bedding point that you think the bucks are bedding on thick and then the next one thick and having an open in between on that leeward ridge is, is gives you that in between to hunt. Good point. If you know what I mean. I mean, you make the whole thing thick where you're hunting them. Right. Um, right. Especially in rut, because in rut they're going to go from that one point to the next point looking for does. And if, and if it's thick all the way across, you have a hunting spot. You at least have to have a, an area open enough to hunt. If you, you make it thick and you create bedding in there, the, the smaller deer will fill the voids, and you get a lot of lesser bucks bedding in there, and when you go into hunt, you're kicking deer up the ridge on, and notifying the buck. So having a little bit of open woods in between those bedding is is, uh, is a good thing. 
especially when you know they run those ridges and run those leeward ridges. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, like you said, you know, all of one thing and or, or none of another. You want that diversity, um, not just you know mm-hmm. monoculture in there. Um, and I, I mean, I didn't really mean to bring up water holes, but if you're going to put in a water hole, are you are you digging one yourself and laying a a kiddie pool down there, or a little tub from the hardware store? What do no, you guys I would do I would hire somebody to come in and and, and uh, use a tractor to do it, okay. or if you have the tractors and stuff yourself, put a liner in or put some uh, bentonite in there or whatever you got to do. But uh, it's got to be a good solid water hole that you're not going constantly getting your scent by it, putting water in it. I mean, you can put a kiddie pool up there and put water in it every now and then, and and be successful. But you're going to be a hell of a lot more successful if you're not getting your scent up there. It's going to be a lot better. And the same thing with that water hole. You can put a cell cam over the top of that and not go in there until your bucks come into it. Oh, man. You, you know, another another thing while we're on that topic, and before I forget it, is another thing I like to do is, is around that bedding point, take out the oaks unless it's, you know, some woods it's almost all oak trees. But if you've got some diversity, if you can take out the oaks in that area, and not have the oaks till you get to the water hole, and not have the oaks until where you're hunting, like that open area in between the points. Because when the acorns are dropping, try to kill them things when they just get up and feed right where they're bedding. It's just really tough. That's, yeah, that's interesting. You could maybe couple that with uh, a nice apple tree or, or something along those lines. It might take a little bit to get that apple tree to grow up in that big oak canopy, but shoot, that's, yeah, take the food out of the two points where they're bedding and put it where your stand is. Yeah, they're not bedding there to feed. They're bedding there for security. But if the food's there, they're just going to stand up and feed. Yeah. Okay, now taking that same same program, what if you're on swampland or flatland, uh, like, like my property? I got wet woods that meets uh, like an open swamp, and right where the, the wet open woods, the regrowth isn't coming up in there very well, so they're not bedding there. Right where it meets the swamp, it gets real thick, because on the other side of that transition is open. There's no trees, so it's that transition, they're bedding right in the the edge, like, like you mentioned before. Is there any pocket or diversity or maybe blocking and cutting past or something you would do in there to try to get them to to, to give you yeah, that, you that own it, um, Usually, usually uh, the best thing you can do is to, to plant some sort of high grass if you make an opening or something that's high grass. Because even the trees, I mean, once they, you drop them, the big filthy parts, you move them behind them. Um, another thing um, I do is just some of those really tough spots, I wait for the right day to hunt them. Like maybe it's a windy, rainy day. Because then they're a lot like, less likely to see you moving when everything's moving. That's true. Or hear you when, when everything's wet or um, raining, you know. Um, sometimes it's all about timing. Yeah, that's a, that's a good thought, too. Um, I'm trying to get some more trees removed out of this area because it does get pretty wet and it was logged, but the undergrowth is just not coming up like like you'd want it to, to be real bucky and, and, uh, and get that good stem density. So that's, that's yeah. interesting. Okay. Are there um, any other types of habitat types that you're seeing? Like if you're walking, either public or private, are you walking out there and saying, you know, red brush is bedding. Focus on that, whatever you're scouting. 
or well, if you if you're down by red brush and stuff, um, if you've got water, standing water in, in thick cover, isolated uh, bedding is the best around water. So if if, if you get a, a water barrier around the bedding, so just a high spot where they can bed with this water barrier, giant bucks love that. Um, anytime I'm around lowland. There's nothing that beats that kind of bedding. Like even when I, you know, like when I hunt all those islands and stuff like that. Yeah. They're never bedded right on the dry land on the island. There's usually some water, and then there's a high spot, and then they're across the water. Um, so run that scenario uh, out real quick. So just sorry, just to be specific, you got the island that's dry land, mm-hmm. and they're coming off of that back into the water up to another little dry spot that's not on the island. Yeah, is that right? So if you, if you think about the islands I hunt, very rarely do I find those big bucks bedding on an island. It's really rare. I mean, a lot, I think a lot of people have the perception that that's where they're bedding. They're not. They're bedding on the ground around the island that's elevated out of the water. Mm-hmm. In the swamps, I'm talking about. I don't think I, you know, some some of your listeners might not know what I'm talking about, but I'm talking about like in cattail marshes or, or tamarack swamps or something. When you're walking in muck and water, and you come up to an island, an elevated spot where it's more woods for a small, like an acre size or something. They don't bed on that island, but that's where you're going to find all the sign. They bed off of a point or something that go, that tapers down into the water, and it'll still have high spots that come up in the water, and then they come up onto the island. So they're right next to the island, but they're not actually on it. Well, why is that? I believe it's for protection. I mean, try to get near something like that. Um, they don't use their, you, you know, like when you're, we were talking hills earlier, they use their eyes a lot, and they use their nose from behind, a combination of the two. When you get in swamps, it's more about sound. They get themselves in those isolated spots where they couldn't see you at seven yards from their bed. But they're certainly going to know you're there. Try, try going through that water to them. And I think it goes beyond human going after them. I think uh, it goes back into the evolution of wolves and coyotes and things like that. I mean, you don't see coyotes going in the water after them or wolves. Um, and if they do, there's going to be a lot of noise doing that. And on the other hand, if, if, if to kind of uh, lock that in, once the water freezes out there, I don't see them bedding on those little humps no more. They come out and then they get more on the dry land where they got more of a vision. Okay. So I think it has a lot to do with sound. They can hear you coming. Well, that kind of relates back to your point you mentioned about, you know, waiting for some real good wind or, or some rain or something to help you get in there or, like, on my spot to help me get back there uh, without going, you know, without getting busted or going noticed. Yeah, you know, a lot of times it's hard. I mean, I've got, I've got spots where I know there's huge bucks bedding and I just can't find a way to get within that daylight movement range. Um, there's one spot I know in this um, swamp near my house where I, I put a cell cam out there this year and I must have got 15, 16 different uh, Pope and Young bucks that just keep going by that camera. Nice. And I, I just can't kill these things. I mean, you can't, you can't get in there without them knowing you're there. And I struggle and I try and I try. But that's what it's about. I mean, these things are experts at finding those spots where you can't kill them. You know, that's the thing. Some of them, you're not going to be able to beat them because that's what they're doing is they're trying to create a spot where 
you can't get to them. Yeah, and that's why they make it to, you know, three and a half, four and a half, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Any any last uh, thoughts on betting on, on private land? I know we got a lot of agricultural listeners, too, who I think you, you mentioned it earlier about how the deer are betting against an edge, you know, cover. Mm-hmm. Um, anything we missed on betting? Um, not that I can think of. Yeah, I know you got some great DVDs if anybody wants to catch up on that stuff, right? Yeah, I do, yeah. Mm-hmm. I got a whole series of how they bet on different terrains. So farm betting, uh, hill betting, uh, swamp betting, marsh betting. Yeah, guys, so if, if you're not familiar with Dan's stuff, we were talking about some swamp betting with those oak islands he mentioned, and, and he's got DVDs and all this stuff, so be sure to check him out there. We'll get to that at the, at the very end where everybody can find you. Uh, they can find me at thehuntingbeast.com. That's my website. It's a forum base where we uh, talk hunting tactics. Uh, they can find me on Facebook, and uh, we have a, a Facebook forum, too. However, our website is more user-friendly. Um, people on Facebook tend to be a little rude, um, <laughs> as we all know, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think the best the best venue I have out there is uh, my YouTube page. I've got some really good videos on there that are free. And if you're on the edge of buying one of my videos, I mean, usually with my videos, people either hate them or they love them. There's no in-between. You have to like the... Um, the tactical end of things to like my videos. Um, but you get a good taste of what that is on my YouTube page. And then you'll know whether or not you want to buy the videos. Yeah, but I think maybe some of the stuff people don't like, the majority of guys do appreciate because you put it in layman's terms and make it real easy for everybody to follow along. And, you know, nothing technical, nothing crazy, but I think you do a great job of explaining everything. Yeah, I think the guys that don't like my videos are the guys that just really want to see deer get killed, you know. Right. We probably right. usually only show four or five kills in a three-hour video. It's more about how you go about killing them. For sure. So talk a little bit about the challenges you face with the self-filming. I know you do a lot of self-filming with different cameras. I've seen you try them on your head and on different mounts. How, how do you... Yeah. Uh, get so close to buck bedding and, and deal with all the setup and the challenges to deal with filming. I'll tell you, when I first started, I wanted to throw that camera in a lake a couple of times. Um, <laughs> it takes to get used to, but after a while, it just becomes like a second hand and it becomes pretty easy. Um, I've, I've developed my own camera arm that's just for self-filming because I don't like having a cameraman. Um, when you're getting close like that, a lot of times I'm in little tiny trees because there's bucks are animals of uh, edge. And if you, you're being really picky about exactly what tree to get in because you're watching where they go and stuff, um, a lot of times you don't have a lot of cover. You're trying to look like a, you know, six-inch uh, poplar. You know, so uh, I don't have a cameraman. So I take a, I, I get a small camera. My cameras, I usually use like three or $400 uh little cannons and stuff, and I burn up cameras a lot in them swamps and stuff. I drop them and they get soaked or I go through the ice or whatever. So I use cheap ones for my cell filming. And when we, when we do have a cameraman, then we use the more expensive cameras. 
and then uh, on my arm, I have one of the squeeze grip handles so that when I let go, it locks in place wherever it's aiming instead of coasting okay. around like a like a uh, fluid head. Right. Um, That's on so your arm, you I said? back my camera all the way off, all the way back. So there's a little smaller screen and stuff, but then I get everything on film without having to, you know, be watching the screen constantly. Right. Yeah, that, that's a good point because, um, like you talked about, guys that are following you are more into the tactics and, you know, the, the super zoom in, close up kill shots, pretty and everything. But I think you do a great job of getting the whole picture, you know, the way that you do it. Yeah. Thanks. So, what other kind of equipment are you using for the uh, filming? Any any special mounts or anything else for uh, any? No, other I'm, I'm kind of a minimalist. I uh, I usually just have my camera and my arm, and then occasionally I'll take a small head cam that I can just turn on quick and get a get another view. Okay. Um, but uh, that's it for filming stuff. And then hunting-wise, I just got really my bowl, and I, uh, I wear a hunter safety vest, and everything I take hunting is in that vest. So if I put the vest on, I have everything I need. It has a release in one pocket, uh, my bowl rope in another, uh, a trimming saw in one pocket, and uh, a pocket full of milkweed, and a flashlight, and a small knife, and that's pretty much everything I take. I don't take drinks and meals, and I'm not going camping. <laughs> so that's that's it for me. I'm kind of a minimalist when it comes to that. So Dan, you mentioned you designed an, an arm long ago. Um, I'm familiar with that arm, though I've never been able to find one these days. Um, any idea on, on where to get one of those? I think I saw Joe was looking for one the other day too on Facebook. What, what yeah, I, I sell them on my site. Um, oh, do you really? I don't. I don't sell a ton of them, and I don't push them, but we do sell them. Mm-hmm. They're nice. We custom build them, so um, when when you buy one, it takes you uh, a couple of weeks to get it. You know. Oh, okay. I get it. Yeah, they're they're nice for um, self filming because you don't need all the fancy leveling and and all the other stuff. Um, for a point-and-shoot type situation, if you're doing all the pans and whatever mm-hmm. else, uh, maybe, but, and there's no ratchet, so that was always uh, intriguing to me. Yeah, I keep mine quiet. I, I use the same kind of straps you use, like, on the, on our sticks or on the lone wolf stands, you know, with the buckle sort of to quiet, um, and they do level. You, you can level them. Cool. They have all that on it, but it's, you know, you level them, get them set, and, and leave them. Yeah. Okay, and how many uh, hunts or years did it take you to get your first real hunt captured on film? And do you remember what that hunt was? Jeez, uh, I don't even remember. I remember uh, the first deer I, I uh, the first big buck I filmed. It was uh, it was in Iowa, and it was a big ten player and. Uh, I shot it in the shoulder blade trying to get it on film zoomed in. I was just struggling with the camera and it was a chip shot and I, I believe that uh, I let the stress of it get to me and tried to force the shot. Oh no. That was the first one I ever shot on film. I don't remember which one was the first one I killed. 
I'd have to really think about that. Yeah, just I've been re- doing it for so long. <laughs> yeah, even that one in Iowa. I mean, we're talking that was Jesus, probably well over two decades ago. Wow. I, I mean, I I've, I've been doing it for a while on myself, and so I can commiserate with you on a lot of this stuff. And I know that I think it took me like my third season. I finally <laughs> it all came together. Thank God, and on uh, on a nice eight point. But I mean. Talk about wanting to throw that camera like you mentioned. Been there, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think it, it's funny because at first, um, it's like you, you, you can film and kill bulls like nothing, and then one of the big bucks comes in, you screw everything out, you know, since you add the camera into the mix. Because you get used to killing them and you have a system. You add something like a camera and stuff, and it's a lot more frustrating than it seems looking from the outside. So here's a question. Does it ever take your mind off what would be buck fever or any excitement where you might get nervous? And maybe you don't get nervous, but, like, do you, do you think the camera ever takes your focus onto the camera versus looking at the rack or shaking or anything like that? No, I, th- I think it's still a little bit of a hindrance, um, okay. but it, not nearly as much. Um, I don't get as nervous as uh, as I used to. Um, I mean, everybody, when they see their target animal coming in, gets a little excited, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, it doesn't bother me like it used to. Um, uh, these days, um, if the shot ain't right or anything, I just let it walk. Where I think when I was younger, I, you know, I would try four shots and stuff like that. I, I don't have any of that in me anymore. I think I've uh, proven enough. I don't have to prove I'm a killer or anything. If I don't get a deer, I don't get a deer kind of thing, and uh, tell when you do everything perfect, you wound enough of them, you know, yep. so try to make sure I just take shots, I really believe I'm going to kill the deer, and you know, and if, if the camera's in the way or something something happens wrong, I just don't, don't take the shot, you know. For sure. Dan, you mentioned your YouTube channel, uh, for those of our listeners that haven't checked it out, he's got a Real variety of different things on there, interesting things. Um, I like the venison recipe that you put up there a few years <laughs> back with the cube, cube chopped steak and the, and the butter. Is that still your yeah. favorite venison recipe? Yeah, yeah, it is. And I eat that. I eat most of my venison that way. Really? Yeah. yeah you I like cube a little uh, venison and then you add some butter. And you cube some vegetables and you add some butter, put a little salt in there and you add some butter, <laughs> and then you cook it in a stick of butter. <laughs> <laughs> I can take the healthy out of anything. <laughs> Is there any other ways you prefer to have your venison? Uh, with a Red Bull. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you definitely see a lot of those on your channel, too. That'll keep you going for a while. Yeah, no no sleep for me ever. Three careers and uh, never sleeping. Can't sleep when you're dead, right? No, Jared. I was going to say, you can sleep when you're dead, right? Right, exactly. No, I I remember sending that video to a buddy of mine who's pretty obsessed with butter, 
uh, probably three, four years ago, and uh, we got a kick out of that. So it's funny you brought that up, Brian. So yeah, it reminded me of Paula Dean, but uh, I enjoyed it much better. <laughs> <laughs> so Dan, where are you getting your T-shirts from? Uh, <laughs> I buy some of them, and a lot of them are sent to me from viewers. Okay. For anybody who doesn't know, like we keep saying, go on to Dan's YouTube, and then uh, he's probably got the best T-shirt selection I think I've ever seen. Um, that that monkey shirt is pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that one, uh, uh, my brother came to, to work. I work with my brother, and he announced in front of the whole shop that he had a shirt that I would not wear on a video. So I oh. had to wear it. <laughs> <laughs> That thing with, the white, the, background, with the white background from the snow is just, it's its perfect. I laugh every time I come across that one. <laughs> I think the one that got the most notice was the one that said, uh, I'm not gay, but 20 bucks is 20 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my wife and kids love the cat pants. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my daughters looked for those. I don't know if they ever found them, but I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't show up wearing them someday. <laughs> <laughs> Admit it, you got a pair, too. You just won't wear them out. <laughs> i have to put them up on next podcast video. <laughs> yeah, you got to, if you watch my YouTube videos, you, you definitely got to watch for a minute or two. Don't, don't take a look at me and say, this guy's screwy and turn it off. <laughs> yeah, I think we just accept it because you know I, we've been following for so long. It's like oh, I don't care what shirt he has on. You know, it's gonna be a sweet video. So and that monkey shirt, ooh, that got me. That was hilarious. <laughs> so Dan, we we want to be respectful of your time here. Um, I want to talk about the beast and and your new products and workshops right now. Uh, is there anything else though before we get to that that? You want to let the listeners know based on, you know, habitat management and, uh, you know, maybe one good piece of advice for the small property owner? Uh, just don't overhunt it. Um, really, I, I I would lock into that. If you're going to listen to one piece of my advice, is to do more observing, whether it's from a cell cam or actually physically observing, and hunt less. The, there's a there's a ratio somewhere, and nobody knows exactly what it is. But if you don't hunt your land, you're not going to kill anything. And if you hunt your land too much, you're not going to kill anything big. And somewhere in between is is the is the magic formula. But the less you're there, the better your land's going to be. And uh, I think most people overhunt their land. That's a that's a good point. That's a good point. I know. Uh my first year, I, I took that advice on, on my property. I've owned it three years now, and I uh, I waited till I think, October 27th to hunt it the first time. And I don't know if I've still had a, a hunt that good on that property as that first and second hunt. It's just crazy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, like you said, let all the neighbors push it all in and just sit back. But So if you think about me and Dave, because we take team that property, and most people have a partner they hunt with, their brother or Somebody's hunting it with them, right? Otherwise, what fun is hunting? But so what me and Dave do is we try to 
coordinate our time. And if we're going to hunt once every two weeks, we both hunt the same day. So we're, so it ain't, you know, you know like, uh, if, if we're hunting it every two weeks, if he's hunting it one week and then I'm hunting next, like, week every, pressure every week, right? Yeah, so we're going on the same days. Yeah, that's a good piece yeah, of advice, too. All right, I got one more for you before we get to the beast. Uh, your favorite tree, whether it's to hunt out of, whether it's to hunt around, like the deer like it for habitat purposes. We asked this question uh, more recently, and we get some pretty good answers out of it. So I'm curious to know what Dan Impulse's favorite tree is. Um, elaborate a little more. What? Under uh, for what reason? Yeah, sure. No, sure. We we didn't put it in the outline here. Uh, it's it's kind of a question we've been asking different people uh, on to to wrap the podcast. Just what your what your favorite tree is. I mean, it's something you a tree that you hunt out of. It could be a, you know a tree you killed your most memorable buck out of. It could be a white oak because you like hunting over acorns. It could be an apple tree or okay. or a pine for the cover. Um, just when you walk into the swamp or, or the farm country, you're going to hunt, and you look at a certain tree, like, oh, baby, I love, I love those trees. Like, what are you thinking? I always love big, ancient, old willow trees. Uh-huh. Uh, the kind you can get up about six, eight feet up and stand in the crotch and blend in. Bingo. And, I, and I've always wondered when you hunt in there, you know, if that tree is, you know, two, three hundred years old, and who may have been there before me. But uh, I've killed a lot of big bucks out of willow trees with no stand or anything. They always seem to have that perfect, when they get really old and big, that perfect uh, platform about six or eight feet up. Yeah. Well, there you go. Another perfect example of how that question is uh, just, it brings out some good stuff. And I've seen your videos where you're up in those trees. You you have those on some of your videos, right? Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Good answer. Now, uh, if anybody wants to find you, let's hear about your your hunting beast company and you know your your products that you're coming out with these days. I know you came out with your sticks and whatnot, but go ahead and uh, pitch what you got going on there if you don't mind. Um, you're asking about my products. I was having a hard time hearing you. Oh yeah, your uh, your hunting beast products and what you're doing these days with them, and and go ahead and tell the listeners about how they can find them. Uh, Hunting Beast Gear um, is a site for the sticks and uh, pretty soon the stands. Um, We now have an 18-inch stick. Um, We made a shorter one um, because people were demanding a shorter one where uh, most of us like that. Um, We got a uh, 22-inch stick. Most people like that, but uh, we made an 18-inch one for the shorter guys, and for the um, saddle guys, like the shorter ones. Um, but uh, the sticks are awesome. They weigh uh, the the longer ones weigh two pounds each, and I think the smaller ones are like 1.8. I don't remember, but uh, that's with the strap. All you guys take the straps off and put other things on to attach them to the trees. But uh, the two pounds with the strap. And that's uh, for anybody who doesn't know. That's your your mobile climbing stick where you you strap around the tree and you carry three or four of those with you, right? Or how many do you carry? I carry five. 
five. But I carry five lone wolf sticks before we developed them. Gotcha. Um, so w- w- the thing is about the sticks is uh, I work in R&D, and uh, I work with experts uh, in engineering and stuff, where most sticks and stuff are developed by hunters, not engineering groups, and most stands are developed by hunters, not engineering groups. So we have these um, intricate engineering systems where we can go in and design these things in cyberspace and get the weight right and get get them to exactly where they'll be rated for 300 pounds and stuff before we even manufacture one. And uh, it's a pretty cool science behind it. You know, um, you know we've uh, taken all the weight out of these things and made them just really super light. And we're able to come up with a system for hooking them onto a tree where they lock in so tight. You know, when you take the belt off, you're going to pop them out of the tree. Wow. There's no kick out or anything like that, even with the shoulder ones. Oh, really? Okay. And you said you have a stand coming out. What's uh, the story with the tree stand? Uh, a few years back, uh, I developed a, a machine stand. Um we water jet out the platform and then we machine a few spots on it. Um, I've got a patent pending on that. And uh, we, uh, we've we been tweaking it for quite a while, trying to make it perfect. And uh, now we got it where we want it. And uh, as a matter of fact, I'm going to production on Friday to whip a few up and uh, put them through testing. Nice. The stands we have right now, they look like they're going to be um, just under six pounds. Um, wow. And what's important, too, is when you look at the lightweight stands that are being built out there, that uh, when you buy one, make sure it's TMA certified. Um, just a lot of people, garage building uh, tree stands and stuff, and they're not certified. And looking at them from an engineering aspect, they know why they're not certified because they don't pass. Sure. It doesn't cost much to have a stand certified. If they're not certified, there's a reason. So just think about that. Any stand you buy should be certified. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that's looked like you had looked you had a pretty good turnout for the workshops. Yeah, the workshops are great. They're a blast this year. Real fun guys. Did you just have um, the one, or you have some more coming up? Yeah, uh, this weekend we did uh, marsh, uh, public land marsh. We actually went in and looked at the places I actually hunt in the marsh, uh, marshes around my home uh, and looked at some of the places I've killed some of my good bucks at. And uh, I actually take people out to my public land spots and show them where I've killed bucks. Do you believe that? <laughs> but uh, I, we're planning on uh, doing a big woods one, and uh, we're going to try, try and fit in a farm and <clears throat> Excuse me, a farmland uh, combination hill one. If I can fit in the time. How many guys did you have show up this last one? It looked like a pretty good crowd. Uh, on Saturday, I think we had about uh, 27 people. And on uh, Sunday, I think we had uh, like 15 or 16. Okay. And uh Everybody will just follow along on all your social media, and they'll be able to pick up when the dates are for the upcoming ones. Absolutely, yeah. And if they send me a message about it, I, I, I go back over those messages and make sure those guys get a notification in their email or 
on Facebook or something when uh, another one comes out. Okay. That was a heck of a rub that you posted a picture of after you guys wrapped up. Yeah, yeah that was a pretty nice one. Well, like Garrett said, we want to be respectful of your time, Dan. We really appreciate you coming on. Um, is there anything else you wanted to add before we wrap this up? Nope, I think it went well. Thanks for having me on. No problem. And uh, for our listeners, just go Google Hunting Beast. You can find him just about everywhere. He's got a website. He's on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and uh, YouTube for sure. Make sure you check out those videos. A lot of good information, a lot of good laps, good recipes. And uh, appreciate you coming on, Dan. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, Dan, thank you very much. Take care, and uh, look forward to getting our hands on those uh, sticks and stands as soon as you're uh, launching. Thank you once again, Dan, for coming on the Habitat Podcast. Really enjoyed speaking with you. And uh, thanks, everybody else, for tuning in to another episode. We uh, can't do it without you guys. Really appreciate your support. Thank you for the great reviews that you're leaving online on iTunes and Stitcher and uh, Spotify. I'm sending out free decals to those who do. If you leave one, just let me know and shoot me a message on Facebook and we'll we'll get together. Um, I'd also like to thank our sponsors. We have 5-2 Outdoors, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, The Habitat Hook, Morse Nursery, Packamax Cultipackers, and HuntWise. Thank you all so much for your support in the podcast. And lastly, if you want more from us and you want to listen to all of our episodes, you can find us at HabitatPodcast.com. Go to the website. All the stuff's there. we got some hats, some brand-new hats coming on there in the next week or two, so be sure to check that out. Shirts, uh, decals, all that good stuff. HabitatPodcast.com. Thank you so much again for tuning in as we become better habitat managers. Stay safe out there, and see you soon. Academy Sports and Outdoors every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.